everyone, and welcome to episode 22, I believe this is. Episode 22. No, this will be 23. There we go. It's episode 23 of Words, Images, and Worlds, and joining me today is author Nancy Collins. Nancy, thank you so much for jumping on. My pleasure. Yeah, uh, I got the chance to meet you last summer at Heroes Con. It was the first comics convention that I had been to. I was wearing a mask, so I was the guy that looked like <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that, that might be why I didn't, didn't particularly recognize you. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, We had a good conversation about the Golgotham series mm-hmm. um, because that was new to me and uh, a couple of other things as well. So I started this podcast just a little bit ago and thought it would be great to connect with you and talk about reading and literacy uh, comics and storytelling and all the things and and your work has been part of my life growing up um so yeah um absolutely so my first question and we can travel anywhere that you want to is uh what what drew you initially to comics and storytelling i'm an english teacher so i'm always interested in those stories of what connects people oh just i was steeped in it yeah you know, some of my earliest memories of reading like like Walt Disney comics and Little Lulu and uh, all the all the comics in the late 50s, early 60s that were actually aimed at young readers, which they don't have anymore. Um, uh, you know, like Casper and Hot Stuff and um, uh, Herbie, the Fat Fury. Uh, <laughs> and you know they're, they're um plus and, and that kind of was um and I had older cousins who I got their hand me downs, uh, which is how I discovered uh, the Fantastic Four and Spider Man, uh, which if I'd had those books now uh, I'd be rich. <laughs> oh, <I'm laughs> they, sure. they 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 went through the hands of a lot of kids, so I don't know. <laughs> um. Yeah, uh, Superman, the the Kurt Swan Supermans, uh, the uh, Superboy, the old Legion of Superhero, everything from the, like I said, the Silver Age, um, and the early the early dawn of Marvel, um, and then like I said, I was just steeped in that, and uh, and I came from uh, I grew up in rural Arkansas, but I came from a very literate family. In that um, my uh, great grandmother uh, was an educator. Um, uh, she graduated from Vanderbilt and was considered a blue stocking back in her day. And and uh, uh, and my mother's attitude was, I don't care what you're reading as long as you're reading. And uh, uh, and my grandfather had been a big. Uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs fan back when it was in Argus. He had a huge collection of Argosy magazines, which I had those today. <laughs> yeah. But um, but they all burned up in a house fire. But uh, but no, he was a big fan of Tarzan and John Carter of Mars, and uh, and he was a big horror movie fan like Boris Karloff, Bella Lugosi, Lon Chaney, Senior and Junior. Uh, so. Uh, grew up with that and um so there was a lot of uh, there wasn't any shame to reading comic books or being attracted to pulpy stuff 
uh, especially the, you know, the weirder stuff and, and on my mom's side of the family. My dad's side of the family didn't read particularly much, but they respected the ability to do so. <laughs> so, um, uh, so that, that, that my dad, my dad was Hank Hill, basically. Yeah. Yeah. He did. Yeah, so whenever I said, what is your fellow like? He's like, oh, ever seen King of the Hill? Well, that's my dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, um, and I uh, grew up around that, and that was also probably the golden age of children's uh, this, uh, literature, modern literature in the sense of like uh, Charlotte, Charlotte's Web, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. What? Break everything I own, cat. Okay. Cat has decided <laughs> so, to. Yeah, well, at least he didn't vomit. That's the last time I did a podcast. He decided to to disgorge everything he'd eaten for a week right on, on my feet. You know, the joys yeah. of learning an animal. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, The Worst Witch, um, uh, Dr. Seuss, um, all those were, you know, you know, uh, plus, you know, reading stuff like Alice in Wonderland. I, I can't even tell you when I started reading those because it's so early into my childhood that it, that probably about six, seven, you know, uh, like when I was a brownie, uh, I, I was reading Alice in Wonderland and uh, and all these other all these other ones. Uh, Charlotte's Web, like I said, Charlotte's Web, Stuart Little, um, uh, the Roll of Doll books, um, uh, a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I I also grew up. Um, you mentioned growing up in a rural but literate family I don't know about my extended family but my mother always read to me and it was fairy tales but the thing I remember is like the darker fairy tales you know yeah like well, the that's darker all little <laughs> oh yeah yeah oh yeah um but, yeah I taught myself to read because um when I was about four three or four because that my mother my mother there's like 18 months between me and my kid sister. And then, um, then she had my brother when I was about four and rather than, and then she got, you know, she got busy <laughs> and she mm -hmm. had, had little, little kids dealing with it. And I was, and rather than wait for my grandparents to come over and read to me, I started teaching myself to read <laughs> because I got, yeah, I didn't want, I, I was impatient <laughs> and, and, sure. and, and I started reading. I, I, yeah, I was already reading before I was in kindergarten. So that's cool. That is cool. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and draw and writing stories. Although I couldn't write, I would I would draw them. I would draw stories like in my, you know, like the Curious George books for and Babar. Though those are very influential on me because they're you know the the artwork is very very basic, mm -hmm. very colorful. And, um, and I would write stories, uh, like, like in my storybooks, 
And then I would stand next to my parents and tell them what the story was. Nice. <laughs> so it was an early form of comics, maybe. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, and according to my mother, the first story that she can remember me writing was about a um, taxi cab that falls in love with the city bus. Um which is a kind of thing because I was living in rural Arkansas. I had never seen either of those things. So what, what I knew of them was from my, my picture books. Yeah. I knew what a taxi cab was and a, and a bus was from my picture books. And, and, but the, the bus would, the bus wouldn't have anything to do with the taxi cab because he was little and, uh. and it would just fart uh, exhaust in his face <laughs> until Someone tried to hijack the bus to Cuba, which I, that must have been going on. That was about the time they started having people hijack planes to Cuba. So I must have seen uh, that on television, on the news. And the bus was being hijacked to Cuba. And the, <laughs> and the, ta the taxicab saved the bus. I, don't, I can't remember how, but the taxicab saved the bus. And that's when the bus decided that she liked the taxi cab. <laughs> a story of unrequited love and yeah, yeah. proving he had mean... to prove himself. <laughs> but he uh, and you women. were just taking in the world. <laughs> he liked big women though. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned Bella Lugosi and some of the the horror connects. Is that mm -hmm. Uh, part of your journey because uh, oh, yeah. I, I would I say your best I was, a, I was a monster kid growing up and that was also the golden age of of monster you know of monsters you know monster media because um, that was when um, all the uh, horror movie hosts were in full swing late mm -hmm. late fifties through the mid mid sixties mid to late sixties and um, you know, the Munsters were on TV, the Adams Family, um, you know, they had Chiller Theater, Shock Theater, um, a lot of the, the I mean, I, and uh, it was also the, you know, the Hammer movies and the Vincent Price movie, you know, uh, Poe movies at the theater. And um, my grandfather was, like I said, a, a huge Boris Karloff and uh, Bella Lugosi fan, and the owner of our local movie theater was the Malco chain, which I think maybe still exists. Um, but uh, there was a—he was actually the, as it turned out, the vice president of the Malco chain. But he had picked this small pissant town in in rural Arkansas to live in, <laughs> um, and. And, but he had copies of like every, he had, he had prints of, every, of virtually every film that had ever gone through that chain. And he kept them in a basement in the movie theater. And uh, when television started making headroads uh, into their business, he, he would have like on the weekends, like Thursday through Sunday, they would have the, you know, what was, the current film playing, but the rest of the week, keep the doors open. He was effectively doing like art house stuff. And it was like one night would be all Westerns or one night would be all, you know, musicals or, or uh, war movies or 
John Wayne movie. You know, you pick a particular, you know, detective movies, and and it would always be one night, one night, one night it would be silent films, um, and and one night was invariably you know, like horror movies, and so I got to see a lot of these horror movies on the big screen as opposed to just on television. Oh yeah, and um, and I would go with my grandfather, go with my grandfather. Uh, yeah, so that was, um, uh, and, and one of the first records I can remember him being given was the, uh, uh, Boris Karloff reading Mother Goose and his, and him doing the Grinch, you know, reading the Grinch, the Grinch that stole Christmas. Oh, and, yeah. and, and because of that, I was never, ever able to be scared of Boris Karloff because <laughs> I just associated him with my grandfather. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah yeah there's there's something that's fascinating the the way monsters work in stories i'm peeking the vampirella name above your yeah, head um, yeah well she's you're getting some glare off of her but yeah 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 I, re yeah I wrote i was the first woman to write vampirella um as, uh, as a regular writer um on the series and that was from 2000 and when was it uh 2000 and yeah 2014 through 2016 and well before that you were also in swamp thing which is yes a, I, was, a lot I, was, of I was the first woman to write swamp thing uh, and that was uh 91 to 93 uh, there's and, something about learning about people through monsters you know uh and, and female storytellers. I mean, I'm thinking about Mary Shelley here and like um, that vision into humanity. And sometimes the best way to get that is through someone who's ostracized and, you know, the, the monster kind of character. Um, so really fascinating, fascinating stuff with those. Yeah. Well, the, the you know, the sympathetic monster is, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, basically, it's the the template is you know the Frankenstein's monster, where mm -hmm. you know, you yeah, know, he, he, he can't help being what he is, but and you can understand it, but at the same time, yes, he is kind of fear <laughs> something to be scared of, yeah. and um, uh, you know, you know, dealing with that those aspects of of human nature, um. And, um, the the werewolf and the Frankenstein monster can often be viewed as you know unwilling monsters or having monstrosity thrust upon them by outside forces, whereas the vampires are usually uh, are better. Even though there's a tendency to romanticize them, they're kind of like the uh, uh, they're the literary equivalent of you know toxic relationships and or, or toxic power structure. Yeah. Uh, you know, whether it's you know, whether it's the bad boyfriend or it's the you know the patriarchy yeah. <laughs> or it's just the, the hedge money yeah uh, you know, the people the people who who do you know take all you got and don't leave you with anything yeah and 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 if you're not and if you're not lucky you know, they turn you into them mm -hmm. so yeah that's it a really powerful metaphor. Yeah. Yeah.
and, and uh, yeah, I mean, that's why vampirism is, is I mean, it can be, you know, used as a metaphor for, you know, uh, being the other, you know, any kind, any, any kind of sense, um, but, you know, you can just like the X-Men have been used, but at the same time, it's also a good template for, like I said, toxic relationships or uh, power stru structures, um, uh, help, you know, uh, the spread of disease mm -hmm. or how people deal with how or how things, you know, or fighting against monstrosity, you know, just because you are a vampire doesn't mean you have to be a monster. Um even though it'd be easier to be a monster. And um, that that's what my 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 first novel, uh -huh. Sunglasses After Dark, is largely about. It's about a female vampire slash vampire slayer and uh, her fight against um, succumbing to her own monstrosity. Um, even though it'd be easier, it'd be easier for her if she would just let herself be a monster, but she can't, she can't surrender her humanity. Um, uh, mainly because she's not a hundred percent dead. You know, it's the idea that she was, she died on the operating table after being attacked, but was resurrected through modern science. And so she's got a vampire inside her. Mm -hmm. And she's slowly turning into one and has been for the last 50 years. And, uh, and she fights with that thing. And, and I never, I've never made it hundred percent clear as to whether the vampire insider, which she calls the other, if that's really a vampire entity, if it's a separate intellect or if it's her, her own id given agency. Mm -hmm. And, uh, uh, and the thing I, I'm not a big believer in trying to explain things to readers in, on that level. You know, uh, ambiguity is is a true art form. <laughs> and yeah. and um, I, I like ambiguous endings where it's like, yeah. oh, this is a happy ending, or is it? <laughs> or, or or is or that's a oh, it's a sad ending. But not really. You know, there's hope there. Um. Uh, the, to me, those are the best. The best endings are the ones where it, you, it's open to the reader to interpret what goes on from there. And I'm, 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 what I'm saying is, I, I'm, I'm, I'm giving my readers credit. Love it, love it. <laughs> yeah, I I teach English uh, during the day. <laughs> And, you know, one of the things I fight against and I kind of struggle with is this idea that I'm teaching works that I love, authors that I love, stories, poetry. And then very often students take a multiple choice test where they're forced to like <laughs> choose an avenue. And I'm going, that's not what it's about. That is not what it's about. Um, but so it goes. Maybe, maybe at some point the education system will give me enough power to say, uh, yeah, let's let's let kids write and explore and create Nevertheless, well, <laughs> yeah, they let they let that go into college. <laughs> yes, <laughs> true. Um, so you also, I love the way you uh, critique patriarchy, social structure, 
And that's part of what just makes fantasy and science fiction work really well. Um, so this is kind of my lead into talking about the, the Go Gotham series, because I had not heard of it until I met you last summer. And <laughs> yeah, uh, it, 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 it kind of got uh, swamped in the late uh, in the mid 2000s urban fantasy um, uh, roller derby. Um, but, you know, which is which is ironic since I'm actually credited as one of the handful of people who invented urban fantasy. <laughs> I yeah. just didn't know it at that. I just thought I was writing vampire novels. <laughs> and then, oh, you need to, you know, ex- you know, make hay with that. And by, by that time, uh, everyone was doing urban fantasy novels. So, but um, I enjoyed work. I enjoyed working on it, and I, I consider it you know, some of the high point of my, my literary output. And it's, I mean, it's a fascinating series and something about the design too, because I know you worked on a lot of, uh, yes, you got them there. I was about to talk about the design. Um, they kind of have that feeling of some of the shared universe novels that came out in, I want to say like the late eighties through the nineties, um, and, and they definitely have that appeal and uh, lots of interesting things happening in the yeah, stories. It's, it's well, it's um, it, it's well, this is the first, you know, they're still technically in print. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it's the first book, Right Hand Magic. Um, and the Gal Gal, yeah, it, yeah, it's about the supernatural ghetto of New York City, uh, which, um, unlike a lot of the urban fantasy stories you know where and this is basically where all the supernatural and mythological you know creatures attached to the various ethnic groups that settled in new york uh live mm-hmm. and they have their own neighborhood just like chinatown or you know, harlem or spanish harlem or the dosada um uh they live in Golgotham, and you know it's leprechauns centaurs uh race of witches um that i created but um uh you know various types of fairy folk and naiads and uh satyrs and what have you and uh they all live in Golgotha, um which unlike a lot of the other urban fantasy stories that have something like this it's like yeah it's not secret everyone knows they're there Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a, a chamber of commerce called the Gobu, and they have, you know, uh, uh, they sell T-shirts. You know, they have tourism. Um, they um, and they're and and then, it, but as the story goes along, you discover no, it's not just a neighborhood; it's an actual city-state within the city of New York, much like the Vatican. <laughs> <laughs> because mm-hmm. that was part of the deal is these these creatures helped the founding fathers break away from from England. <laughs> so they yeah. had a pact with with George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams that yes, this is this is their homeland. You know, you know. They're, so it's kind of like a, they're not a, they they're kind of like the creation of Israel, a uh, uh, combination of Israel and, and the Vatican, mm-hmm. and like, a, an exact you know, and, and that there's a truce because basically there has, you know, the, 
these races uh, in humanity haven't necessarily gotten along much uh, over the th over the course of the millennia <laughs> they've been together and and as the story progresses it it first kind of looks like our universe but except with magic and then you discover no a lot of things haven't happened in history here that that happened in ours such as there never was um there were never uh crusades the crusades never happened uh the dark ages never happened uh because of that and um uh because instead of the christians and the muslims fight and, and the Jews fighting each other over the Holy Land, they all teamed up to try to eradicate all the supernatural creatures in the world until apparently God told them to cut it out. <laughs> or maybe not. You know, it, it, that's another thing I left it up is uh, supposedly the hand of God came down and wrote, you know, you know, knock it off. You, you, know, you do me no honor on all the all their major holy sites. And there's still arguments as to, you know, whether that was actually the hand of God or if it was the witches that 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 pulled a fast one. But no one's willing to 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 find out the hard way <laughs> because God threatened to wipe everybody out if they couldn't get along. And it's not like there's not a history of that in the Bible. <laughs> so, um, so it's a it's a. You know, it was combining, and my my universe is not based on Tolkien. Uh, my fantasy world isn't based on Tolkien. It's more based on Michael Moorcock. <laughs> so, uh, the more Moorcockian um, Lord Dunsany um, uh, end of the, the fantasy spectrum as opposed to, to Tolkien. And uh, so it's more, it's a more weird fantasy mythological feel to it and yeah, but yeah there's right hand magic and it, it it also it's also a love letter to every neighborhood i've been gentrified out of because the big thing is that these guys are trying to keep from being gentrified out of the neighborhood because it's in prime um uh new york real estate is what what would now be what was used to be the, the Fulton Fish Market in between Wall Street and Chinatown, which is now I think called the Seaport. I, I used to live in New York. Um, but yeah, the, the, this, is, this is the second uh, second book, Left Hand Magic. And uh, since, the, since we're doing show and tell, and this is the third and final book, Magic and Loss. There were supposed to be three other books in the series, but uh, it didn't, yeah, the, the response wasn't that great. Although uh, we were, it, it almost got turned into an NBC weekly series <laughs> a few years ago, but uh, I got beat out by uh, a Charlene Harris vehicle. Uh, um, yeah, but um, but yeah, Golgotha. You know, there's dragons, or or there, or at least there used to be dragons, um, and uh, you know, so it's more. Yeah, it's more about, uh, uh, like I said, it's a tribute to all of my neighborhoods I got gentrified out of, starting with the French Quarter in New Orleans uh, and uh, going on to New York City and the Lower East Side, uh, Atlanta's Little Five Points, you know, <laughs> all the places where the artistic people end up going. And then 
after we've improved everything, we get, you know, make it a hot place to, to hang out. And, uh, the uh, money people move in and, and, and jack up the rents. So I think a lot of people can identify with that nowadays. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I live in a basically a tourist town on a teacher's salary. Yep, absolutely. And yeah, Oh, you're in Asheville? Oh, it's uh, so Boone, North oh, Carolina. Oh, yeah. Yeah, close to Blowing Rock. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so. The Tweetsie Railroad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's the place. Yeah, I've been up there. Yeah, I've been yeah. Blowing Rock. Real estate is crazy, but um, at least the views are nice. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh no, I'm, I'm, uh, it's lovely up there. It's lovely, and uh, but but that's what um, yeah, the Golgotham series was was an interesting um, expansion on that because um, uh, having to create uh, most of most of the races were were taken from mythology um, and. Um, folklore except for the chimera who are the uh, the, the witch rulers of, of Golgotham and they're they're kind of a they're kind of like um Melnibidians from the Elric of um the, the Elric series that Michael Norcock did they're they they mm. could they're what you we, we would have thought of as fairy folk maybe or elves except yeah uh, they're tall you know tall have six fingers their hair's like you know, and they also look anim like anime characters because all their hair is different. You know, like purple. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I <laughs> like, like born purple. that way. <laughs> purple, <laughs> blue. Um, uh, their eyes are you know have cat slits. You know, so they're 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 humans, but they're humanoid, but they're not human. And they yeah. have the ability to handle magic by birth, uh, as opposed to having to learn it. They have the natural ability to to channel magic because they have six fingers on each hand apparently that makes it easier and uh, uh and they used to have dragons mm -hmm. and uh um and believe it or not i never read george R. R. martin's game of thrones stuff i mean i've known george for like 30 something years but um uh, i'd never read the books and I, I didn't I didn't start watching the series until after I finished doing the Golgotha stuff. So I didn't realize I was like, you know, like echoing a lot of the stuff from Game of Thrones. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, well that that one too. I mean the social commentary that comes through. Uh it's nice to share that vision. Yeah, yeah. Well yeah, they they have a lot of, there's a lot of uh uh, uh problems so, you know with on both sides you show you know show it's not just the humans being hateful but the you know the supernatural creatures are also like no i don't like being any humans here <laughs> go back to where you belong get out of our neighborhood yeah but, so uh, it, yeah that that uneasy you know but in the middle of it there's a you know interspecies inter i don't know <laughs> romance between a, a warlock prince and um and a human artist who um who moves there because the rents are cheap? <laughs> so yeah. but yeah, like a lot of us ended up in New York City. <laughs> so mm -hmm. uh, or or the French Quarter. You know, I can remember when the French before the French Quarter was a hundred percent tourist trap. Yeah, that was a good forty years ago. Yeah, you know, back when they still had an elementary school. <laughs> 
down there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and not every other building, every other storefront was a t-shirt shop or a daiquiri shop. So, um, yeah, so it's a, yeah, it, 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 I, I could just ramble about it, but I'm, I'm better if people ask me specific questions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I would say, I'll, I'll just, uh, yeah, it, it's worth the visit. It's totally worth the visit. It makes me a little sad that it was going to be a series and didn't get to be a series. So I hope someone well, picks it, it up. It's three books. I mean, Back yeah. in the day, back in the day, a trilogy was a, it was the most you could hope for. Now that you have like people with like twenty three books in a series, there's right. <laughs> like, um, yeah, at least another three books. I, I've got I've got it blocked out. It's called Chimera Rising, and it's about the reemergence of the Chimeran um, civilization and the return of the dragons. <laughs> One of the books was going to be called Dragons Over Broadway. I oh, love <laughs> so, it. Love it. The cover image is coming to mind. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and nowadays it just be tight. They don't. They don't do covers like they used to. <laughs> true. Very true. Um, so before we have about two minutes left, and we can always jump back on and uh, do a bit more recording. But um, before we go, any any other upcoming or recent works? Well, that, funny to uh, mention, I have yes. Yes, Blade Runner. Uh, this Black is what Lotus. I've been doing recently, which is a uh, uh, comic book series for Titan uh, mm. called a ba- Blade Runner Black Lotus, based on the anime series that was on uh, Adult Swim and Crunchyroll. Mm. And basically, it's about a female replicant trying to find out. Well, she kind of knows what she what she is, but she, she wants to know where her what she can do in this world which is hostile to her. So, um, and the, the big difference between this and a lot of the other Blade Runner stuff is that it's, they made the decision to take it outside of LA and take it out into the, you know, the world outside Los Angeles and the Blade Runner franchise. And I have her out in the Inland Empire um, uh, in between. And eventually uh, I'm doing two more. This one's called Leaving LA just came out uh, last month. It's a um, graphic novel. Mm-hmm. Collects the four uh, issues I did uh, with uh, Enid Balam, uh, a fascinating Mexican artist. Um, and uh, the next two are, uh, I'm doing two more miniseries with them. I just finished the, the, sec- the, the second of these three miniseries. Uh, it's called, um, it's set in, La- in Las Vegas. Uh, yeah, this uh, Blade Runner Black Lotus uh, is set in 2032, I believe, which puts it about fifteen years after the first film, which is mm-hmm. supposedly set in 2020. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Um, yeah, it's about twelve years after that, and about twenty something. 25 years before the second film and um and basically they wanted to show we get to see in the in in the sequel to Blade Runner what it kind of looks like outside of LA Mm. and um this kind of continues that and 
but what we discovered is a, it's a lot. Once you get outside of LA, it's a lot like Mad Max. <laughs> so yeah, yep. yeah, it's a lot like Mad Max. It's a hellscape, and uh, but and then again, LA is a hellscape too. It's just a different. I, 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 it's always amazed me how many people don't seem to understand that Blade Runner is a dystopia. Yeah, yeah. definitely a dystopia. And sure. it and it's about <laughs> late stage capitalism. I mean, they, they, this is about you know they're taking everybody who's physically fit to to colonize Mars and the outer worlds, and everyone who has some kind of genetic problem or is too old or um, you know or is can you know they're they stay back. You know that they, they're not allowed to immigrate. So, um, you know, there's a lot of some Gattaca tied into that too. Um, yeah, and, and it's um, plus the you know the fact that you've got replicants which are slaves. Yeah. Yeah. This is this is you know Blade Runner always has been uh, about. Uh, man's inhumanity to himself or things that look like him or things that they can talk themselves into thinking are less than themselves. Um, yeah. So it's always had a racial undertone or a classist uh, undertone. So, um, yeah. And, um, and like I said, it's about in-stage capitalism. And so instead of trying to save the world, it's, like, eh, it's too late. We're just going to go and we're going to leave here and, and we're, and we're going to just loot, what we can out of this out of the planet before before we pull the ripcord and get out mm -hmm. and and those of you who are left behind well that tough yep. <laughs> that, that's pretty much what it is tough and um uh and it's uh yeah so the plus the the fact they they create these replicants to do all the stuff that they don't want to do or can't do. Mm -hmm. um, and, but at the same time, you, you know, you create life and, but you don't want to take responsibility for that life wanting to have its own life. And you know, Frankenstein is like, you created me, now what? <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and, and I want, I want to, I want to be alive. I want to have a life. I, what do I, you know, um, and also the I also address the the unspoken underpinning behind all this, which is if you have a, a, a race or species or whatever the replicants are that look just like us, mm -hmm. and they're made to look like us because a lot of you know they also work as sex workers, amongst mm -hmm. mm -hmm. other things. I, you know, otherwise you can make them where they they wouldn't even have to have a head or anything if 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 all they're doing is manual labor, you know, they, they would not even, they, they, they wouldn't even have to even look human to do what they needed to do. And, um, but that was our choice to make them in our image. And, mm -hmm. um, and that sets up a lot of things where you have things that look just like us, but you can treat them like absolute crap. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, lots of, yeah, Lots to the point where, too. what does that do? Well, you could, we start looking at humans that way too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you can't tell them apart unless you you look, you know, some what well, they've got something tattooed around the iris at one point, 
or they've got some kind of serial number on them that you have to microscope. I, you know, I don't know why they would just put it across the forehead and answer that question mm -hmm. instead of having to like quiz them as to their empathy. Right. <laughs> and, um, and basically Blade Runner Black Lotus is like this guy the, has created a new, this is about the, the new level of replicants that you see in the sequel. She's the first of them. And she's the prototype for that and gains self. Well, she, what he, he wanted to build something uh, that was better than the other replicants. Mm -hmm. um, but he may have accidentally included a soul, which he wasn't counting on. Uh, and the thing, you know, because that, that's the one problem I have writing for the, the series is that I keep asking, so what are replicants? <laughs> How do they make them? And they go, and no one knows. Because the, the only person who knew was Philip K. Dick, and he's been dead for 40, 40 something years. And and I've said, well, are they clones? No. Well, are they androids? No. Well, what are they? And are they something in between? Are they cyborgs? Uh, no. And I said, well, <laughs> they're whatever we need them to be. They're a metaphor. Yep. <laughs> so, there you go. They're it still makes it real hard to me to like figure out exactly what the, you know, what they can and can't do. But uh, they're us. They're physically better than us. They're physically more powerful, more durable. They're humans designed uh, to order. And uh, we don't want to say they're human. So, uh, yeah, but, you know, like I said, it's, it's a good metaphor for our treating the human tendency to treat those they consider lesser than themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, like, you know, like not, uh, not even like animals, but like uh, disposable, you know, product. Yeah. And uh, about being eaten, eaten up and spat out by, by, you know, industry, um, corporations, um, and how that, how that, then it's also about, you know, the old life finds a way. It's like you create these things. Mm -hmm. They're going to, they're going to be self-aware at some point. And how could they not be? Because you gave them memories. <laughs> and, and, and they can, you know, that was supposed to make them feel, you know, better about whatever you're doing. So at least I have memories in my childhood where I was loved and taken care of and, well, if you have memories of that, you want to get back to it. Mm -hmm, true. <laughs> and you, it it's nostalgia. And uh, um, so this, you know, it's, I've had to think about it a lot <laughs> the last couple of years because that's what I've been working on. And yeah, it, yeah it's, it, I remember the first time I saw Blade Runner and, and it wasn't until the end of it, I realized, oh, Harrison Ford's the villain. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. Oh. And and, and and I came to the realization apparently about the same time Harrison Ford did. <laughs> <laughs> and and there's still a lot of people who watch that movie who don't realize the replicants aren't the villain. Yeah. 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 
I, yeah. I love that you take it up and you think about it that way, though. That's uh, when I see your name on a book, I know that I'm going to be in for a good story that's <laughs> considered and thoughtful and uh, that you yeah, kind of wrestle I, with I, those things. I get a lot of um, praise for my world building, which I, you know, how can you not, when you're writing, how can you not build a world? Mm-hmm. And you have to make some sense of what you're doing, unless everything, unless you're setting yourself in contemporary culture at that moment. Yeah. Yeah. But when you're working in what I do for a living, uh, that's very rarely going to be the, the case. Um, you have to build something around your your premise, um, whether it's horror or fantasy or science fiction, or even if it's mystery. Um, uh, I also do westerns. I do weird westerns. Mm-hmm. Um, Skinwalkers. Uh, uh, yeah, Skinwalkers. Uh, I have uh, one novella called Lynch, a, a gothic, a gothic western, which is a uh, about a, a Frankenstein gunslinger and his carnivorous undead horse. <laughs> like a, I can't think of anything more terrifying than a meat-eating horse, to tell you the truth. <laughs> but having, bit, having been bit by one as a child. <laughs> so, um, uh, but yeah, that, you know, where, you know, Gunslinger gets, you know, lynched and, um, and his body's found by a, um, uh, traveling medicine show guy who happens to be an old protege of Victor Frankenstein who came to this country to get the hell away from what was going on over there. Mm-hmm. And there's Napoleonic Wars. And, uh, um, yeah, people forget that was kind of going on around the same time as the Civil War. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Um, and, uh, and brings him back to life wherever he can go back and Find the sons of bitches who strung him up. So it's basically hang him high, uh-huh. but with Frankenstein. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he's got and he's got a horse. That Who is carnivorous? Is carnivorous, yeah, a zombie horse. And uh, uh, so yeah, I, I did a, a what I can I call my weird western triptych, which was combining the the major tropes of horror with the major tropes of of the western. And mm-hmm. um, the three the three tent poles um, in in horror is the the vampire, the werewolf, and Frankenstein's monster. And in westerns, it's the cowboy. You know, or well, well I should say the 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 uh, the lawman, mm-hmm. uh, the gunfighter, and the um, the American Indian. Mm-hmm. And I combine those. The uh, uh, Lynch's combines the the gunfighter with Frankenstein's monster. I have one called Walking Wolf that combines um, the the werewolf with the American Indian. Uh, it's actually a, a a werewolf version of Little Big Man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, a werewolf, a young werewolf is a baby werewolf is found by Comanche Indians. Um, when he's in his human form and they adopt him, which the Comanche did quite a bit. They, they were famous for, for taking children from, you know, you know, like 
you know, Quanah Parker's mother was was white, and she had been um, her family had been wiped out by the uh, by another tribe, and this tribe of Comanche came by, and her and her brother were were survivors, and they took them in, and um, she ended up becoming uh, the bride of the of the Comanche chieftain Nakona, and that was Quanah's Quanah Parker's father. And um, uh, so there's a lot of reality mixed in with that, and and that's also yeah, and the and the lawman was crossed with the vampire, which I did call the Dark Ranger, which is basically the story of the Lone Ranger, but he gets bitten by a vampire. <laughs> yeah, yeah, love and, it. Love and, the... and his version of Tonto is a woman is a is a Comanche. Sh- shamaness and she doesn't wear uh all she wears is a bead pectoral which is was pretty common back then with the women tended to walk around bare breasted so <laughs> so I, I did i did research on on that but but my my i have family in texas so i grew up knowing a, a bit about that so um you know, so th- those were those were fun to fun to write, and because uh, it mixed up, it mix and match, and uh, and I did a similar novella uh, where I had Captain Ahab as an undead monster hunter. Um, <laughs> Love it. Uh, yeah, because he owed the you know, uh, it, it, he made a deal with the devil once he was got dragged down to the bottom of the ocean mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, that if he could bring um, bring the devil a monster for every soul every soul he uh, he drowned on the Pequod he, he'd be he'd get his soul back and uh, to do with as he wished and uh, and I had him you know it was part of the thing called um, classic speed elated which is mm-hmm. this was about the time there was a lot of um, uh, is it the um, Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies and oh, yes. Abraham yeah. Lincoln, Vampire, Vampire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, so they did a uh, anthology that was mix and match, you know, public domain and, and <laughs> public domain characters and concepts. And uh, I ended up combining um, Ahab, you know, from Moby Dick with uh, Algernon Blackwood's The uh, Wendigo. Yeah, which actually, it actually, in the, it, it, it's more like the Evil Dead. <laughs> if you read the story, you're going, yeah, this is technically a Wendigo, but this is the Evil Dead. <laughs> so, <Yep. laughs> um, and and I later expanded on that with a novella called Absalom's Wake, which asked the question, what if instead of uh, writing Moby Dick, Herman Melville decided to create the Cthulhu Mythos? And the answer is, nice. it'd be a lot shorter and have more were sharks in it. <laughs> <laughs> to yeah. say Herman Melville would write something shorter. Yeah. Well, well some of it, well, his, his early travelogues are rather. Are, they are, are, that's true. Yeah, as composed as opposed to the stuff he did later. Um, mm. Yeah, Taipei. Serialized. Is, yeah, Taipei was, was um, uh, comparatively short. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same with the, was it Red Bud? Um, 
and but yeah um uh, but yeah I, I did a lot I, I read Moby Dick not once but twice for that and I actually enjoyed it on the second time because I was I was like doing it for research and mm -hmm. um, uh, came to came to a greater appreciation of Melville and oh uh, and yeah, yeah and he was gay <laughs> in case you did I mean in case you could figure it out <laughs> but there you know there it was um and uh, and but yeah this was a man who actually spent time with cannibals out in the South Pacific um and Maybe. but yeah and, and people and the reason that Moby Dick didn't do well because it was because people were reading his books because they were trapped at home you know that's back when nobody really got to go anywhere except you know the trains trains were a relatively new thing and <laughs> mm -hmm. most people didn't more go more than 20 miles from home and uh and they're reading it for you know just well, his descriptions of these beautiful south sea islands and they're quite striking i mean especially in taipei and the way he describes the the, the islands he was on um uh, and he, in all these exotic places and half-naked women and all of the, you know, the cannibals and all the excitement and all that. And, and then Moby Dick comes out and it's basically this guy describing the hell of living, of, of doing this thankless job on a whaler, uh, uh -huh. and, uh, squeezing oil out of these hapless whales. <laughs> and how much it, how, how much it stank and how, you know, and, and people were like, and in between, and in between detailing all that, and it was a dying profession as he was writing it. I mean, it was you know, he was documenting. He made the decision to document a dying profession and industry because that was wasn't long before what petroleum took over, and uh, and uh, and in between that, this this weird story about this crazy guy. <laughs> Gonna kill this white whale <laughs> and kills Again, everybody else Yeah, spoiler alert. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> those um, metaphors. Yeah, and the yeah, chapter and, where he's beheading and, the whale, right? Like speaking of. Oh yeah, yeah. There's one where they talk about cutting the head off, how they cut the head off of the sperm whale, um, and then get the 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 stuff that's actually you know they're ki they're killing a whole whale for just the stuff in its head, and they would just cut the heads off and you know well they would melt down some of the fat and stuff like that. A lot of that just got tossed back over the, back into the oceans with the that's why the sharks will always follow them. But yeah, you know, they were basically killing whole herds of whales for their heads. And um and then and the teeth, the the and the whale bone. You know, they would take their ribs and the baleen. Yeah, it was the baleen, uh the the straining um for whalebone car corsets, and they also made umbrellas out of it. That's like you know people killing ostriches for their feet to make umbrella stands, and same with elephants. You know, just like well, killing ostriches to make feather boas, and killing elephants for to make umbrella stands. We're horrible. <laughs> it makes one want to be a vegetarian. Yeah. No, no offense to Vampirella back there, but it makes one want to be a vegetarian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well. No, that wouldn't been, it wouldn't hurt. Although I guess vegetables really hate her herbivores. I mean, there's a, there's no way to 
to live this life without inflicting trauma on something. I guess they recently discovered that vegetables scream. <laughs> you pull them out of, out of the ground. It's like, uh. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no way to live that true Buddhist lifestyle. No. <laughs> The more, the more we learn, the more we feel bad about you know, feel bad about everything we do. <laughs> so, um, uh, but uh, yeah, I, 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 I gave me a real appreciation. I, I, I was also a history major, so a lot of this was was very interesting. Um, and the, but it was also a reminder that when you do research for a book. Just because you research it doesn't mean you have to put everything in there. Yeah, <laughs> you don't have to put everything that you researched in there, just enough to make it believable. Uh, otherwise, it you know that's nonfiction. <laughs> so um, yeah. that uh, that underbelly of truth that yeah, verisimilitude. Yeah, yeah. This is the, the, everything that that allows you to have the suspension of disbelief as mm -hmm. a reader. That's why I usually steer clear of talking about guns of any sort. <laughs> so, except to say, and then he shot her. <laughs> or, or say, he used bullets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, my, my boyfriend is, is very, um, uh, he's got, he, he's, he loves guns. He's, which is weird because he's like a, he's a raging progressive liberal. <laughs> <laughs> but, he's probably one of the you should be worried worried about <laughs> so but I, I before i do anything involving guns i run it through him and he goes no that's not how it works I go, okay <laughs> what should what should i say instead yep it's yep. <laughs> always so, so handy to have one of those people around when you're a writer uh, to, to cover the things that you don't know jack about so um but uh, any any other any other questions about any, any of my work? Like I said, I I, I did Swamp Thing. Uh, I've been working in and out of comics since '91. Yeah, I think um, comics was my that was definitely my introduction to your work. And then uh, there were different stories that you did throughout the the decades of like I think the Crow. You did a story mm -hmm. about the Crow at one point, um, and I'd be like, oh, I know that name from over here. Um, so I guess usually I save the last part of episodes for like web spaces, places that people can go, uh, best places to buy your books, thing, things of that nature. Well, um, my social media footprint has shifted greatly since Elon Musk bought Twitter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> With, that makes sense. In the sense yeah. that I no longer have a Twitter profile. Yeah. Um, I'm on Mastodon if you can find my Mastodon party um, if you can find me there I don't post that much and again I didn't post that much on Twitter either but you know I didn't really want to I've been in a house fire in real life I don't really need to be in one online that makes sense, <laughs> and, that makes sense. And, fair enough <laughs> yeah yeah and um, I have, I'm on Facebook and Instagram, uh, on Instagram, on Nancy, Nancy underscore Collins underscore 313. Uh, I post quite a bit there. Um, and I'm on Facebook. I have both a uh, outward facing fan page and a, and a private page. And if you uh, 
Google me on yeah, oh I shouldn't say Google. If you look up, try to find me on Facebook. If if you're if you're find yourself looking at a um picture of Swamp Thing and mm. Abby kissing, I think that that's probably me. Um, right, right. With that name, it, it's either under Nancy Collins or Nancy A. Collins, and um, and eventually, you know, if you, uh, I, I'm pretty good at accepting uh, friend requests on mm. my private page as well. Uh, maybe not be that that quick about it, but I'm pretty good at accepting those as, and. Uh, um, um, I've got a few things that are coming out um, yes, in yeah. the next year. Uh, I've got a, um, I've got a, well, what came out, what's come out already this year is I have a uh, Carl Kolschak story and, and uh, uh, Kolschak, the Night Stalker, the 50th anniversary graphic novel uh, that came out um, a couple of months ago. And it's now up for a, a Stoker Award for Best Graphic Novel. Um, I'm one of like 25, 30 people in there, uh, and, and my story's called, oh, it's my story called, uh, The Sin Feeder, um, mm. and it's, the, the whole, the whole premise is that it's, uh, Kolchak, the story of Carl Kolchak's life from when he was a teenager to the day he died, and people, and people have found his, and these are the stories, is that, his unpublished stories or whatever that are in his, his uh, notebooks. Um, and I have, uh, mine is set in the mid nineties. Um, I was, I was specifically asked to do, to do a story where there's reference to both uh, the X-Files and uh, mm -hmm. Millennium as Night Stalker. Oh, Kolchak was, was credited by, the creator of both Chris Carter is, is the inspiration for X-Files and Millennium. And, and Darren McGavin actually appears in both uh, series. Um, he was a, he was a recurring character in Millennium. I believe he was Frank Black's father, you know, Lance Hendrickson's father. And he, mm -hmm. and he played a similar, uh, similar character in the X-Files once. And, and my story, you don't, they he he doesn't Carl Kolchak doesn't interact with these characters though he has the rights to them, but you see mm. yeah there's intimations and you kind of see them off in the distance, <laughs> or, or 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 a uh, in the case of Millennium uh, their calling card slipped under his door. Oh nice uh, nice. But the, the thing on the back is was it was a fan of your work stay out of this. <laughs> <laughs> his response is well it's nice to know I have fans. <laughs> <laughs> and um uh but the, uh, that was a huge uh the, the the series was a huge influence on me uh as a kid in the original night stalker uh tv series and uh, uh tv movies and then the, the the series itself with darren mcgavin who most people now only know as the old man from the christmas story mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and my parents knew as mike hammer he was the original Mike Hammer on television. <laughs> so, um, and I've uh, this, uh, that's from Moonstone Publishing, and they you can buy it. Yeah, you know, it was originally a Kickstarter, but you can buy it from them now. They have an online store for this Moonstone Publishing, um, and they also have 
another imprint called Monstrous Books. Um, that uh, I have a thing called I can't. I don't know. I have a I have a monster story, and they're doing a comic book that's that like a little trade paperback comic uh, that's all about monsters. And I have I have a, a story in there that uh, um, called the Monster Rally, uh, which has almost no dialogue in it. <laughs> and lots of uh, descriptions. But it, yeah, but it's but it's about being a monster kid, you know, growing up with a fascination with monsters and um, same company uh, also monstrous books uh, is uh, I'm not, I, I just did a original Sonya Blue short story for them. It's like second in like 20 something years that I've written. And um, that'll be um, uh coming out sometime later this year. They're getting ready to do the Kickstarter for it. Um, awesome. And yeah, that's another thing that I'm, I, I'm not used to is the, the, the rise of... of mm -hmm. The crowdfunding. The crowdfunding, yeah, especially with publishers. Yeah. Um, it's, ch it's changing world. Uh, and uh, and uh, they just announced the pre-orders of it at Thunderstorm Books, but... Um, uh, for the uh, Joe Lansdale's Drive-In Tribute Anthology, uh, the, celebrating the 30th anniversary. It would have been the 30th anniversary celebration if not for the pandemic. <laughs> Here's where this book was supposed to be uh, finished and out two years ago, but the pandemic kind of put a hitch in everybody's get-along. Um, uh, but it's uh, it's called uh, The Drive-In Megaplex. Uh, and it's an anthology, uh, various writers, me, Chris Golden, um, Steve Niles. Uh, uh, there, there's a bunch of, I, 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 it's been a while since I looked at the table of contents, but there's a lot of us, you know, a lot of us horror writers from the 90s <laughs> in it. Uh, and my story is called The Drive Invasion, a short feature. And uh, Joe's an old friend. Um, we've known each other since 89 and I was reading his stuff before then so it's it's really nice to actually have a hand in, in that and uh, and I've got the upcoming miniseries uh, they'll be coming out probably early next year um, either late this year or early next year because I, I never know I'm always the last person to find out <laughs> Uh, Application dates, Titan, they're a thing. Yeah, from Titan on um, um, uh, the Blade Runner Black Lotus uh, uh, miniseries. Uh, I think I think the, the operating title at this point for the second miniseries is Paradise Found. And, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll see what the, the third one is because we're... we're hashing that out as we speak. <laughs> and um, I'll be at Heroes Con again this year. Um, and we'll see you there. Mm -hmm, that's the Juneteenth weekend, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, June 16th, 17th, and 18th, I think. Yeah, the 19th. It, it's a holiday weekend now, federal holiday weekend. So, you can, mm -hmm. you know, I'll, I'll be there. And uh, I've got a, uh, 
I've been uh, been doing a collaboration with a local artist named uh, goes by the name Envy Masta, who's tied in with the Wu Tang Clan. <laughs> nice, cool. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, he's he's been doing. He did a twelve piece um, portrait series of the various uh, members of the Wu Tang and their so in the associated Wu Tang family, which is apparently quite expansive, <laughs> and. Um, and he asked me to provide, uh, he, he gave me, he gave me prompts, verbal prompts for each one of them. And I came up with prose, a lot of, a lot of it pulled from like my existing books or, or, you know, like from Sunglasses After Dark, the, the Sonya Blue series, the Gal Gotham series, my weird Westerns and just, you know, he gave me these prompts and, um, and it's, written on the back of the portraits um and they're going up for auction at sotheby's <laughs> in june <laughs> supposedly as part of a, a larger hip-hop art uh uh auction uh and um that's gonna be interesting <laughs> but i can i can actually say yes i've i've had i've had I've had art set of these. <laughs> so, pretty exciting, and, and, and I'm now considered part, uh, extended part of the Wu Tang Clan. <laughs> Always adding to the resume. I, I'm impressed yeah, with. Yeah, uh, yeah. You, you are uh, a prolific that, person. I would not have expected. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, we live long enough. <laughs> Maybe someday I. I don't know about that. Uh, well. well, well <laughs> Well, the Wu Tang Clan is very much into like you know, like comics, horror movies, uh, martial arts stuff. That that, that pretty much that's almost everything I've done, and uh, so yeah, <laughs> I don't see why not. Dollars all bills, y'all. <laughs> One can dream. One can dream. Yes. Um, but but thank you for being so generous with your time. No, no uh, problem. No problem. Just thank um, you for all of the work. And thank you for for being interested. I yeah, appreciate absolutely. it. And um, you have a good have a good. Uh, let's say have a ha you know happy happy Easter, but that's already been done with. But what's the next one? Memorial Day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Have a good spring. Have a good, have a good spring. spring. Yeah. Enjoy the the thawing of the world. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The yeah, it's been thawing all over us the last couple of days. <laughs> Do it up. <laughs>